This is How to Stop Climate Change, the podcast for people that want to get to work fighting climate change. Climate change is a huge problem. We caused it and we need to fix it. I'm David Butler. And I'm Keaton Butler. Let's get to work. Our guest today is Bob Powell, CEO of Brightmark Energy. Brightmark is a company focused on solving waste problems that have global environmental impacts by creating innovative energy products that remove waste, like methane digesters. Although he's been working in the energy industry for about 29 years, Bob didn't exactly start his career on the clean energy side of things. (laughs) It's a story that goes back a long way. Originally, as I graduated from college, I went to work for a great firm, Arthur Anderson, and spent a lot of time working with clients that were utilities or some of the independent power producers that were building power plants. Many of those companies, which were clients of Bob's, were using forms of energy generation that, as you can imagine, had pretty high carbon footprints. He found himself helping with the acquisition, building, and operation of coal plants, nuclear plants, and natural gas facilities. At the beginning of my career, we didn't or were not aware in any appreciable way that renewable energy or waste to energy as a form of reusing and converting energy were viable alternatives. So I started early on with the traditional utility and uh, industry and did some oil and gas work as well. So you can imagine the carbon footprint. Can you think of the time in your career when you first started to see that renewable energy was going to become a pretty sizable part of the industry? When I moved from the, the southern U.S., although working on clients all over the world, to come join Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which is a utility based in San Francisco here in California. And it was a completely different environment. The renewable portfolio standards have been recently adopted that required the investor-owned utilities in the state of California to procure a percentage of their power needs from renewable resources. Something really cool about California's RPS, or Renewable Portfolio Standards, is that they're technology neutral. That means the utilities can purchase whatever mix of renewables works best for them. This market-based approach has spurred investments in a variety of renewable resources, which in effect creates a more reliable electricity grid because different types of technologies generate power at different times, creating a smoother and more consistent flow of electricity over the course of a day, week, or month. As I came here, I had not really seen or heard that type of emphasis on renewables. I was actually shocked to find that in our generation mix, a lot of the fossil fuels were being eliminated. And even in the state of California, um, the nuclear facilities um, were not being relicensed. In fact, we only have, I think, one nuclear facility now left in the state of California. And so for me, that was the real awakening to renewables. And I have to give credit to the state of California that really got the movement with renewables uh, started. But coming here to California from a very different part of the country, a very different sense of feeling around renewables, that was my awakening. Yeah. So moving from the South or Southeast U.S. to California is probably kind of like traveling into the future about a decade. Well, I think in the energy industry, it definitely was. When I came out here... It was like a different world. So our earnings at PG&E were not driven by how much power we generated. We were actually um, not compensated for that at all. And so that's what we call the decoupling. 
So if you didn't catch that, decoupling refers to policies designed to separate utility profits from total electric or gas sales, so utilities don't have an incentive to try to sell more energy. Utilities instead can adjust rates so that revenue is always what's needed to cover costs and a fair return. Many of my prior clients, if you had a hot summer in the South or you know, you had some sort of a blip where your generation went up, you made more money. Well, that inherently incents companies to generate more power because it's pretty simple. If I'm going to get an extra bonus because I generate more power, I think a lot of people are very motivated that way. If we actually could do better with not using energy, we have a lower footprint. But if the people that are providing us with the energy are incented to deliver more, I think we have a misaligning of the incentives in terms of being efficient and environmentally friendly. You know, I think you make a fantastic point about how power companies, how they are often incentivized to produce more power. And that puts them directly at odds with their customers because it's not to their advantage to help their customers be more efficient. The more power they use, the better. So they might be forced to do efficiency programs, but it's completely against their own best interest. So we could take a problem like that and say, you know what? It's the fault of the utilities. I actually think that this is where we all come in. And, uh, you know, listeners to the podcast here, I would expect are pretty attuned to these issues. But I think we need to spend time talking with our friends, family, business associates about these issues. If we are going to impact a change in any industry is by being very vocal about it speaking about it. And David, that's part of what your podcast is about, is getting some of these messages out so we can have a discourse. But I don't put the onus necessarily totally on people who run utilities or the commissions or um, the politicians. We need to have the conversation so that we can help impact change. And that's part of what happened here in California. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's not a purely simple situation where the utilities are villains. Maybe some of them do deserve some blame for pushing government so hard to keep their outdated business model intact. But government's got to take a lot of that blame for not looking out for the interest of its citizens and, you know, denying that we have environmental problems. Bob had started to get a bad taste in his mouth about the way many energy companies were abusing the environment. And so when a colleague at PG&E left his very lucrative job to start up a solar project development company, it planted a seed in Bob's head. In 2009, that seed grew into the decision to switch sides of the energy market, and Bob began his career in clean energy by starting a company called Solar Power Partners. And we were one of the sort of original sort of solar developers for a lot of businesses. So uh, one of the other ones you might have heard of is Sun Addison as well. And at Solar Power Partners, we serve the California market, Arizona, some markets back east, and we built the company up. And then we sold it to NRG, which is based in Princeton, New Jersey. So I actually came to know the team uh, at Sun Addison quite well. And so I joined Sun Addison, which um, at the time was the... uh, largest uh, renewable company in the world. 
owner of solar and wind assets across the globe. And in fact, when I first joined Sun Edison, I was based out of Singapore for a couple of years, and we were working on renewable projects in India, in China, across Asia, and a lot of different places. When we think about the impact of solar energy, at least for me, it can be easy to just picture Tesla roofs, bus stops, and residential installs. But solar can be such an amazing way to completely change the lives of people in areas where access to electricity is not something taken for granted. In a recent episode of our first podcast, Clean Power Planet, Ben Bunker, CEO of the Global Bright Light Foundation, said, For a billion people around the world, living without power is a reality every single day. It moves from being a minor inconvenience to actually something that significantly impacts their life in a series of different negative ways. So I'll give a couple examples. One is economics. So folks are spending up to 25% of their income on candles and kerosene and batteries every single month. And when you only make $100 and you're living in Guatemala or Peru, that $25 represents a significant amount of your income. During his time at Sun Edison, Bob decided to do something about that through international energy outreach programs. We looked to communities that did not have a robust infrastructure, and we saw an opportunity to do things like install solar panels that were attached to water pumps. So you can imagine, I'm thinking of a few communities in India, where you have a community, a sustenance farming community, you have a few huts, little houses, that type of thing. You come in, you install solar power, you have a water pump so that water consistently flows in that community. And so the food production is better. And you also have excess power so that you can power some of the huts and the homes there. So children actually have the ability to study at night. So you're creating food and you're creating a higher education level, and you're doing it in a very environmentally clean way. I look at some of the other situations that I'd seen in countries that um, were not as well off economically, and there were a lot of diesel-powered gensets, very dirty gensets that would produce uh, power for the communities. Expensive, difficult to transport. The environmental footprint was really not uh, that great. I would say the lasting impact that we had at Sun Edison with the projects that are still installed um, across the globe. Um, that was that was a great experience and uh, very proud to have been part of the team at that time. You know, I think that um, I'm so fascinated with, with solar specifically, and I have been since I was a kid, but um, people do sometimes overlook some of the things that we ought to be doing first, like energy efficiency or just conservation, you know, finding ways to use less energy. But I think converting waste to energy is one of those as well. There's so much environmental benefit to be gained from kind of recycling that organic waste um, or even uh, industrial waste like plastic and, and getting the energy back out of it. So um, I think that's fantastic that you're focused on that now. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the different technologies that you're working with. Sure. Um, we, we have two technologies, uh, broad-based technologies, that are meant to address the problems you're talking about. Plastics, right? Thankfully, we finally figured out that for all the great things plastics do, perhaps we're not 
thinking about as we started really using plastics since the 1950s is, well, where does that stuff go? What is the environmental aspect of it? And up until uh, recently, we really have not, from a technology standpoint, en masse been able to figure out how can we reuse the plastics. 91% of the plastics produced in the world and the U.S. are not recycled. And so what are we doing with the 91%? Well, it's piling up. It, we used to send it to China until last year. They said no more of that because we, China, don't want to be the garbage can of the world. So why for decades have we been sending almost all our recycling to China? And why would they want it? Well, China had plenty of capacity to handle plastics and lots of cheap laborers to sort the recyclable materials. Also, West Coast ports in the U.S. were full of empty Chinese shipping containers that had come to deliver goods to American consumers. It made a lot of sense to just send the waste out in an empty ship that was going back anyway. But by 2016, the U.S. was exporting almost 700,000 tons a year to China alone. You've probably noticed, if you live in the U.S., that recycling policies have been changing. Recycling companies have started shutting down or downsizing because, well, we don't know what to do with these plastics anymore. That's because about five years ago, the Chinese government started to get nervous about all this trash coming in. A lot of the plastic was contaminated with stuff that made it difficult and expensive to recycle, and it was no longer a profitable import. Aside from that, a lot of plastic that was difficult to recycle was being snuck in illegally and dumped, which caused pollution on land and in waterways. So, in 2018, the Chinese government cut back almost all imports of trash. And now, a lot of that plastic gets shipped to other countries that don't have the capacity to recycle it or dispose of it safely. So if you have something that's produced in large amounts and there's no real incentive to do anything other than throw it away, what happens to it? It ends up in the environment. So we have very tangible signs of what's happening in our environment that we at Brightmark are going to be a major part and will change the impact of us reversing the trend of plastics getting out in our environment. So in short, what our technology does on that end is to reuse plastics and turn them back into reusable forms, either into fuels, which are very clean or chemical additives, or actually ultimately be reformed back into plastics. So there's a term called pyrolysis. The word pyrolysis comes from the Greek words pyro, meaning fire, and lysis, meaning separating. Pyrolysis is a method of heating organic materials at very high temperatures in an environment with limited oxygen. And through pyrolysis, Brightmark is able to, with over 90% efficiency, turn these thrown away plastics into reusable products like... Low sulfur diesel, uh, actually reusable, believe it or not, gas that can be used to uh, continue to heat this process. And then also, of course, reformed plastics. So the incentives are right for people to not throw away plastics, to bring them to us so that we can then reuse and recreate plastics. Um, you know, one way I've thought about it is, you know, I'm sitting here looking down the street in San Francisco now. If I threw, um, I don't know, a styrofoam cup down on the sidewalk, the shame to say that probably a bunch of folks would walk by that styrofoam cup. If I were to take a dollar bill or a $5 bill on it, that is create value out of what is viewed as a nuisance item, how long do you think it would be before somebody would just walk by and pick it up? But I think if you create the right incentives, if you create value out of a plastic that is now a nuisance, the incentives are aligned. I like it where the incentives are good for the environment, and it also makes sense to people economically or otherwise. 
Aside from plastics, Brightmark's other main technology focus is methane digesters, which my nerdy dad seems to think are the coolest thing in the world. And to be fair, they kind of are. For some strange reason, I guess because I'm an energy geek, I really like uh, methane digesters, the, the idea of them. You know, it seems like we should have them everywhere, like anywhere that there's uh, a municipal sewage treatment plant, anywhere that there's uh, a significant amount of farming and, and there's manure produced. Do you have any idea kind of what percentage of that organic waste um, we're actually converting to energy? It's got to be a tiny, tiny amount, right? Yeah, it's so small that it's almost immeasurable. Um, and, and that's where we see a really big opportunity. Digesters should be all over the place. Even for the foods, or for example, the milks that we drink, there are waste products associated with getting those products to us, even if we were to use and eat and consume all of what we're provided. Uh, so for example, dairy cows, well, they produce manure. What happens to that manure as it begins to uh, decompose in a big lagoon somewhere, it creates methane gas. Methane gas is 80 times more contaminating to the environment than CO2. If you were to look at our greenhouse gas emissions, you can see worldwide, beginning in the 1950s, this really crazy upturning curve in terms of what we're putting in the atmosphere from a greenhouse gas perspective. We want to reverse that tide as well. We've been talking a lot about methane digesters. So, how exactly does a digester work? Imagine you're at a dairy farm somewhere in Wisconsin. Unfortunately, it's your job to take care of the cow manure. So once you've flushed the cow manure from the freestyle barns, it goes into something called a sludge thickener, which separates the solid manure particles from the water. The solids go into the digester tanks, and the separated water is used for reflushing. Imagine uh, a digester that we're talking about being like a stomach. More specifically, the digester is designed to replicate one component of the cow's stomach, the rumen. And once inside the digester, the thick slurry, that's actually what they call it, is stirred by an agitator while being heated to 101 degrees. This produces two things. The solid part of it that will come out and can be used in a much cleaner fashion. But the other part that's left over is this methane gas. The methane rises to the top of the tank and is captured in an expandable rubber bladder. We take that methane gas, we clean it up. We take all the impurities out of it, the stuff that's really not good for the environment. Then the methane gas is sent through a pipeline, which leads to a combined heat and power unit designed just to burn biogas, which then can power the whole farm. But what about what's left over? Does it go to waste? You guessed it. The solid part of that can be used to regenerate crops in much more environmentally friendly way. So that's those are both very useful and much more environmentally friendly than doing what we typically do now, which is throw all those waste products somewhere and it creates greenhouse gases. Another issue with food and animal waste, particularly with manure, which is often, along with fertilizers, put back into the soil, is nitrates. As uh, water washes down, you see a lot of those types of nitrates, which are not really good for the environment, that end up in wells end up in the Mississippi River. So the technology that we deploy there is a technology that will harvest that food and animal waste and create renewable natural gas or compressed natural gas, which is much cleaner than any other you know, gasoline or something along those lines, instead of us pulling 
uh, oil and gas out of the ground or natural gas out of the ground and all the cost and all the lack of efficiencies associated with that. So we can take something that is a bad and harvest it into a good. So that's the general theme for us is what is wasteful that we can harvest and use more efficiently. And that's what we're up to at Brightmark that we're really excited about. Some of the work that Brightmark has done has had a really immediate and obvious impact already. So there's a a dairy up in the state of Washington. It's part of one of our projects. And I'm driving around taking a tour of the dairy. And there are golden and bald eagles flying all over the place. I I talked to the the gentleman who runs the dairy and I, I told him, I said, gosh, I don't think I've ever seen this many eagles anywhere in my life. And he said, you know what, Bob, four years ago, we didn't see a single eagle on our property. He said, but the environmental things that we're doing along with good um, practices and managing the populations made it so they've come back. And he told me, when I grew up as a kid, I never saw an eagle. And until four years ago, I never saw one in my property. You know, so a lot of folks who actually live in the environment see the impacts quicker of what we do. We're just doing a better job environmentally. I mean, that's really cool. What would you say to kids or students now that are uh, thinking about what they want to do with their career and they they want to do something to fight climate change or help the environment in some sort of way? There's a lot of different areas where you can impact change, whether it be environmental engineering. Well, if you don't like engineering, maybe public policy. Public policy is a great area. I will tell you that I think the great thing about this generation we have now, the young kids, is they're really tuned into this. And I really think we're at the forefront now of something that will turn this around because we need to do this. And so I need the help of this generation now. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Stop Climate Change, please give us a review or share the show with a friend. If you'd like to support the show, please head over to howtostopclimatechange.com slash support. All donations will go to cover expenses and help me pay my daughter Keaton for all the time she spends editing and producing the show. I couldn't do this without her. Music for this episode was done by the Deluxe Country Music Band, The Wonder Hills, and Paige Hugelay. Our theme music is by Juices.